in First uh, Peter chapter three. Uh, I want to do a very brief uh, summation of what we've done. Uh, for those of you joining us for the first time, we've been doing a worldview series um, about um, some of the foundational pillars that we start with in thinking about uh, how our Christian worldview is shaped from the Bible, and especially how that is shaped in terms of interacting with the world in a world where many people believe many different things. And so, so far in 1 Peter chapter 3, in verse 13 to verse 15 so far, we've covered three things. The first thing that we believe is the goodness of God. We believe in the goodness of God specifically in how he created the world. In Genesis chapter 1, everything that God created, he said, was very good. And because of that, we know two things. One is that when we see people do good, whether they're Christians or non-Christians, we know that they're doing an objective good, something that's good for everyone. And we know that in our hearts because we're designed after God's image. And we also see in society when good is being done on a massive scale, when many good things are being done, we recognize that because God didn't just create us in, it, in our own image, but he created our societies to work together in a certain way. And so basically, because we believe in the goodness of God and creation, we can see signs of God in goodness everywhere, even by people who do not live their lives for God. And these are not a reflection of their being good, but rather the good God who created all of us. So the first thing from verse 13 that we saw is that goodness we recognize. And so us who know the specific goodness of God and his good commands, we want to do those with joy and with gladness. Um, and do them, as verse 13 says, zealously, with lots of enthusiasm, with lots of excitement. That's the first thing we believe. The second thing we believe is that because of sin coming out of the Garden of Eden, because Adam and Eve, and subsequently all of us, chose to eat from the knowledge of the tree of good and evil and choose to be our own gods, that explains suffering and sin in the world. And because of that, we understand two things. We understand because of how suffering originated, we understand why it's here. But the second is as Christians, we also recognize that suffering has a place in our lives. It's actually a fundamental part of how we mature. Suffering forces us into a state of dependence in which we begin to trust in God even more than when we did before. And so suffering is hard. Sometimes it's excruciatingly hard, but it's not outside God's plan and God is using it still for our good. So that's the second thing we believe in, the goodness of God in creation and the beginnings and point of suffering. And the third is probably the easiest thing that we've had to learn, the most obvious thing about a Christian worldview, which is the centrality of Christ. The fact that we're called Christians because we follow Christ. The Christ in our Christianity is essential, and it's essential to start in a personal way, that Christ is, in verse 15, the Lord of our hearts. And if you believe that Christ is and should be the Lord of your heart, then you have that foundational pillar by following him as the authenticator and definer of our faith. That begins you in this amazing adventure through your life to understand how the world works. And it also understands the beginning of how you learn everything else consequently. So that's a lot, but that's what we've learned so far in verse 13, 14, and 15. Now today what we're going to do is figure out the second, what we started 
uh, three weeks ago now and how honoring Christ as Lord of your heart is the first part of having a prepared defense of the Christian worldview. Today in verse 15, we're going to look at the second one. Now, you can see we don't have the handy-dandy whiteboard, but I think that's because I want us to focus specifically on, on the places in the Bible we're going to go through. And that second part of verse 15 that we need to investigate through scripture is the second part of our prepared defense. And that is a reason for hope. Today, what we're going to investigate is what the Bible means when it talks about hope. Now, hope is a huge, huge topic. It's a huge theme in scripture. And so we could go a lot of places, but really the reason we have to talk about it is because taking hope and understanding it is one of those foundational parts that's like putting on a pair of glasses where everything used to be blurry and putting on a pair of glasses and finally being able to see it clearly. And in a Christian worldview, hope is that kind of enthusiastic, excited idea that makes you put on the glasses of a Christian worldview and be able to see clearly the world and other worldviews for what they are, which is something that is not explaining how the world works, but is rather going against the true way that things work, which God explains in the Bible. And so hope is one of those foundational things. It's, it's that last thing that you can understand and attain to go through this life with not just general positivity, but with actual expectation and joy in this life. And so I want to break hope down in three ways that I think kind of sum up a very simple and quick study of hope in the Bible. And the first, which I hope is kind of obvious, this is the first part of hope we need to understand is the importance of hope. The importance of hope. All that we need to know here is that hope is a good thing. I hope that's obvious to us that hope is something that the world did not make up. Hope is something that God wants you to have. And a great verse to see that is in Romans 15, verse 4. Romans 15, verse 4, the Apostle Paul says, Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Hope is something God wants for you. Paul says in Romans 15, 4, that through the scriptures is how you get that, and it becomes an encouragement to you. One way to think about this is, is considering a verse that we've studied with Pastor Isaiah back in the day in the book of James. James says in James 1, 17, that every good and perfect gift is from God. We know this verse. I think we're familiar with that verse. But the point here is that hope is one of those good gifts from God. Hope is a good thing God wants you to have, and that's why the scriptures were written. The scriptures weren't written to force you to live life in a certain way just because, but that you would desire to live a godly life because of the good God who explained that way of life to us. And that is only found through the scriptures. And again, that doesn't just come from an objective level, from some kind of worldview that you put on like a hat and you can put it on and take it off and understand and not understand. This is a, a deeply personal thing. It's not just helpful to understand how the world works. It's helpful for those places where you don't feel hopeful. In fact, when you feel sad or depressed. Psalm 42 is a really great place to see that. Psalm 42, verse 5, 6, and 11, three times in the verse the psalmist writes this, why are you cast down, 
O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Psalm 42 was written by a man in deep depression, not just from his own guilt and shame because of his sin, but because life is terrible right now. But he asks himself the, the question as a Christian man, why am I anxious? Why am I depressed? Why am I stressed? Why am I sad? Because if I think about my God, I have no reason to be. And he has a genuine understanding that scriptures have explained to him the greatest hope in the entire world that he could ever have. And he explains that in one word, salvation. Now, in that moment, he means that the greatest hope he understands is he can expect to be saved. And he's not just being saved from his personal struggles, from having a life that feels uncomfortable and he wants to be saved from that life and start living a life that's more comfortable. He means something even better than that, though that is very much included. What he means is a global salvation, a salvation in which his life doesn't end in death, but his life continues on into eternity which means that he has an understanding that God is going to make things right with his people, that God is going to provide a way that we can be right with him. So not only this life is okay, but that for eternal life, we have a pure, undefiled, sinless relationship with God that never ends. And that literally cures his depression. Hope is something we need to have, or life is going to be impossible to live positively, happily, the way the Bible says it, joyfully. And finally, I think another amazing verse to go to, 2 Corinthians 3.12, where Paul simply says this, since we have hope, we are very bold. Raise your hand if you're an introvert. Boom, 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 boom. There's a couple of you. I feel like some of you, uh, raise your hand if you're an extrovert. There we go. Okay. Everyone raise your hands. Good job. I'm an extrovert too. And I think introverts will just get this a little bit more than I think extroverts do, but extroverts, I really hope you get this uh, as well. We get shy sometimes. We feel uncourageous and we feel anxious or worried. This is something that I think introverts feel like they get more, but really extroverts just hide it from being verbal. I know when I get nervous, sometimes I just talk a lot more, but there are times in our life where we feel so uncourageous, so worried, so anxious, and so stressful that we can't do anything. And the Bible says, if you have hope, you become courageous, you become bold, stress and anxiety falls off of you. And you can begin to walk through life with a kind of excitement and enthusiasm to start doing the things you know you need to do without any opposition striking you down. Hope is the great fuel that keeps your car going. Fuel is the water that's so refreshing that you want to get back into the game. Hope is necessary. And that, I hope, and at least three verses, we can understand that hope is important. And so moving away from that and moving to the next thing, what we really need to understand is the point of what 1 Peter 3 is talking about. He says that to fight opposition, we need a reason for hope. So you can call this second part a reason for hope. I have been calling it the case for hope, the case for hope. And I think you'll understand why later on, why I think the word case is very helpful to consider this. Now, if we are going to consider a case for hope, 
we need to consider that hope needs to fit in with some of the major themes about the Bible that we've studied so far. Um, maybe if we can take our mind back quite a while back to our minor prophet study, specifically to Habakkuk. If you can move your mind back there for just a second and remember that we had talked about four words that could describe the whole Bible. Can anyone remember if we could describe the whole Bible in four words, what those four words were? If you don't, that's okay. Can anyone think of the four words to describe the entire Bible? It's okay. Your remembrance is a reflection on me, not on you. Yes. What is it? Hey, thank you, sir. Give it up for Josh Feaster over there. <laughs> so, you know, like four words that could describe the entire Bible is that God will be glorified. That sums up the whole Bible. And if that's the case, we need to take that theme and make sure that hope lines up with that theme. If it doesn't, then the Bible is being inconsistent and we can't trust the Bible. Now, why am I saying that? Well, for the reason I just said, we need consistency to trust the worldview. It needs to hold together appropriately. But the other reason is because this is something that every other religion ignores. This is something that I hope you can recognize when you talk to someone and they start asking questions about your faith as someone themselves who holds faith whether you're talking to someone who's Muslim or Mormon or Jehovah's Witness, this is something that is constantly not thought about. Every other religion out there claims that you can do something to be right with God, that you actively in your life can do something where God will want you and want a relationship with you. But here is the problem. Why would any higher power who is unlimited in scope and glory why would that higher power want anything to do with us? Think about it for a sec. What could we do that would make it that we would be desirable to have a relationship with? What is it that they lack that we can make up for? And the answer is nothing. If any religion believes in any higher power that we can do something to reach that higher power, that higher power is lacking something. They are limited in something because they are dependent on us. And the Bible fundamentally denies that. The Bible says that God will be glorified because he and in him in and of himself is totally complete and he doesn't need us. So how can we be hopeful in salvation if God doesn't need us? Well, if salvation fits in with God's plan to be glorified, then we're going to be okay. So I want to read some verses for you that explain why God saves us and how that fits in with our message. Listen to these verses. Feel free to write down the, the references so you can look them up later on your own if you'd like to. Isaiah 48, verse 9 and 11. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off. 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 22. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Psalm 79, verse 9. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. 
Deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. Psalm 106, verse 8. Yet he saved them for his own name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. Isaiah 30, 18. Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are those who wait for him. Could anybody notice a phrase that was repeated in almost all five of those? What phrase was repeated over and over? Got a lot of introverts today. Oh my goodness. That's all right. I'll say it for you. The word and the phrase that's repeated over and over is for his name's sake. Our salvation is not primarily because we're great. Actually, our salvation has nothing to do with our greatness at all. It has everything to do with the fact that if God saves us, he is glorified. And that is the fundamental reason that God saves sinners because it shows him more brightly and more worthy to be praised. Let me explain how this works in our world. If sin had never entered the world, there'd be, as an illustration we've used before, no black canvas on which the diamond of God could shine. If you've ever seen a diamond by itself, you might remember this from many, many months ago. If you've ever seen a diamond by itself, it's very hard to see how shiny it is. But if you put that diamond onto a black velvet backdrop and you hit it with light, all of a sudden that diamond starts shining very brightly. But you couldn't see that unless that black velvet cloth was on the back of that diamond to illuminate it to its brightness. If sin is in the world, we have something by which to judge how good God is. If sin is in the world, we can see all of these attributes that we would not have seen if sin didn't enter the world. We can see the grace of God in saving us from sin. We can see his kindness to us, even though we love sin and reject God constantly. We can see his compassion when we suffer in this life and we do not deserve to be consoled, but God consoles us with his word and with his spirit anyways. And we see his justice in that even though we should be punished for our sins, he put that punishment on his son, Jesus Christ, instead. God will be glorified, and he is greatly glorified when we compare how worthless the sin of this world is and how much greater God is. So now we have a starting place. Now we have a place where we can understand that hope in salvation is not contradictory to God being glorified. And then we have the easiest job in the world is we just need to read the story of scripture and see how that plan unfolds. Think to yourself, I won't ask you, but think to yourself for just a second. What is the first verse in the Bible in which human beings have hope? What is the very first verse in the Bible where hoping in salvation is introduced? The very first verse. Now, it has to come after Genesis 3 because we didn't need hope in 1 and 2 because the world was perfect. It was right and very good. But then the fall happens in chapter 3. So how many verses is it? How many chapters is it until hope is introduced in the Bible? 
very first verse in the whole Bible that gives us hope is Genesis chapter three, verse 15. God is about to curse Adam and Eve and punish them for their sin, but their punishment should have been death. That's what God said would happen. But instead, that death is postponed many years. And instead, God first curses Satan, the serpent, who introduced them to the opportunity to sin. He curses the serpent instead and talks about how the end of the serpent will come about. Genesis 3.15 says, I will put enmity, that is friction or conflict, between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head, but you shall bruise his heel. God promises that one day the serpent will be completely ended. That him as the representation of everything that is wrong in this world is going to be completely dealt away with. And that from that moment on, humanity has hope that they will be saved from sin. And the rest of the Bible is history. And I mean that literally. From that moment going forward is just a history of the events that start to explain to us the stories of God saving his people. God saves Noah during the flood. And as a consequence of that, humanity still exists and has an opportunity to repopulate and recreate God's dominion on this earth. And that continues to another man named Abraham, a pagan man who is not looking for God who God came and found him and graciously decided to bless him with future generations and to bless his people and bless him with inheriting a promised land. And that promise was not forgotten with Abraham's children, with Isaac, with Jacob, with Joseph, and with Judah going forward and forward. And even when those people seemed like all hope had been lost, when 400 years they became captives of the Egyptians, Along comes Moses, and Moses is saved by God sovereignly as his mother puts him in a basket and puts him down the Nile River, an incredibly dangerous river, and keeps him intact and saved, not only with his life, but preserves his life by sending him to the palace to be raised as a prince. And God continues to save Moses when he murders a slave master who is beating a Jewish slave. And he saves Moses even when he flees from Egypt and saves him through the desert all the way until he arrives at a land called Midian. And then when God introduces himself to him and to all of us in Genesis 3 as literally the God of salvation, he sends him back to Egypt, preserves his life to declare with a message and with God's power that God has come to save a million Jewish people and to forever proclaim through them and through their exodus from Egypt that he is their God. Now, those things seem powerful, but I think so often we don't think they're powerful because we think they're stories. And the word stories comes with baggage. The word stories makes things seem so unreal. They feel like bedtime stories or fairy tales, but When we read the Bible, we shouldn't be thinking of them as stories, but rather as evidence. 
like there's a court case being built for God's goodness and trustworthiness. And every single historical event of God intervening on human history is one more piece of evidence that is building and building and building. And suddenly this whole book is dropped down in front of you and said, how about you try and disagree with God's trustworthiness? Because this is the evidence that God is worthy of all of your trust. Hopefully the point is made. Hope and trustworthiness in God is central to understanding the biblical understanding of hope. That's going to be the repeated point that we need to take away from this kind of understanding in 1 Peter 3, this reason for hope, which is your hope is not based on an outcome or a future place. Your hope is fundamentally built on a person. Your hope is built on God. If God is trustworthy, then you have every reason to be hopeful. God has promised to be trustworthy and has built this case of evidence as proving his trustworthiness. And therefore we have every reason to hope in him. The author of Hebrews says this incredibly simply. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. Listen to what the author of Hebrews says. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering because for he who promised is faithful. You can hope in God because he's faithful. He's worthy of trust. And because of that, we have every reason to believe what he says. That hope is built on something that is reasonable, that is verifiable, that you have every evidence in the world to trust in him. If we step back now from the Bible for a second, we think about our own lives, why is that important? Think about the way you use the word hope. I've been thinking about the way I use the word hope this week as I've been studying this in the Bible. We say things like, I hope my next year of school is going to go well. I hope that I have friends and I hope that those friends get to be in my classes so I get to spend more time with them. For those of you who are in your senior year of school, you think to yourself, I hope I get into the school that I want to get into next year. And for some of you who are a number of years out from that, but that is a big goal in your life, you're thinking, I hope that I have good enough grades to get into the schools that I want to get into. Now, let me ask you the question, are we hoping in something? Because when we use the word hope in all of those situations, we don't actually mean hope, not according to the way the Bible says it. What we really mean is I wish. I wish that this thing was happening to happen. I wish that I get into school. I wish that I have these things. What you're really saying is some kind of positive desire that you hope is going to manifest in reality. But you don't have any evidence to show that that will happen. They're just things that we wish would happen. Let me try and sum this up in one single sentence. Biblical hope is not wishing. Biblical hope is waiting. Biblical hope is not wishing. Biblical hope is waiting. What is the difference? Wishing is having no evidence of something, but a desire that it happens. Waiting is having all of the evidence, knowing something's going to happen, and you're simply waiting for it to happen. Do you see the difference? Do you see the way that your life can be completely transformed by a biblical understanding of hope? Because according to Peter, you don't just have a wish. 
You have an ability to be fully assured and comfortable waiting. Because no matter what happens in this life, you are going to die and see Jesus Christ. And it has nothing to do with your perfection and everything to do with God's trustworthiness that he is going to bring salvation. So the last thing we need to look at is not just understand that hope is important, not just understand that there is a reasonable case for hope, but we as New Testament believers, people who have the New Testament and not just the Old Testament, we get a bonus, which is we have the proof of hope. That's the third thing that I want us to finally look at is the proof of hope. Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter six. Hebrews chapter six, verse 17 to 20. It is a bit of a difficult verse to understand on a single hearing. And so sometimes it's easier to hear it. If you don't get there in time, that's fine. I want to ask you a favor, which is to listen very closely as I read this verse. And if it doesn't make sense, I'm going to explain basically what the verse is saying. So we understand the proof that we have that we can wait on God and he's going to fulfill his promises. Sound okay? Okay, I saw a couple of nods. I'm going to hope you stay with me. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 17 to verse 20. If you're not there, that's okay. I'm going to read it to you, and then I'm going to explain it to you after. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 17 to 20. It says this. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as the forerunner on our behalf. What on earth is going on there? Let's just break that down very simply so we can understand the proof of our hope. What God is saying in Hebrews chapter six is this. God doesn't have any reason to have to prove that we can trust him because God's already proved it through the whole Bible and Hebrews chapter six says it's impossible for God to lie. Have you ever heard someone ask you the question if you're a Christian and they, I used to get this question in junior high in particular. Have you ever been asked the question, could God make a sandwich so big that he couldn't eat it? Or could God ever make a boulder so big that he couldn't move it? Have you ever heard of a question like this before? The whole point of that question is built off the assumption that God is unlimited in power. And so there's things he, there's nothing he can't do. That is wrong. God is limited because he has limited himself. And one of those limits is sin. God can't do everything because God cannot sin. He is unlimited in power, but limited in his character. He cannot sin. He cannot lie. When he proves his trustworthiness in the world, it is impossible to prove himself non-trustworthy at any point in history and in any point of existence. He's that faithful. But he wanted to show something even greater. He wanted to put grace upon grace to reveal the greatest particular hope we could possibly have. And he says that this is what it is, that he sent Jesus Christ as a forerunner. We are scared of death. We learned this on Sunday. 
but Christ ran into death first and he proved that he could not stay dead. That the ultimate manifestation of evil and suffering in this world is your life ending, it's death. But Christ already ran that race straight into death and three days later he proved that it was impossible for that to hold him. And through that act, Jesus acts as what Peter calls our blessed hope. Way before we get to 1 Peter chapter 3, 1 Peter opens with this statement. This is the very first sentence that Peter says when he begins his epistle. 1 Peter chapter 1, after introductions, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Your hope to repeat is not in an outcome or in a future. It is on a person. You do not hope in a worldview that stays together. Like we learned three weeks ago, you hope in a person. And Peter says that that person himself is hope. He is not a dead hope. Jesus Christ is a living hope. He is a hope that cannot die, and therefore our hope cannot die, because we, like Christ, will not stay dead. The resurrection, like we learned on Sunday, is this particular manifestation of the gracious trustworthiness of God that is so good that we can never, ever get enough of it, if you understand how powerful it is. The hope of the, of the resurrection is such of a hope that the biggest thing, death, that we would ever have to worry about becomes a non-issue. And that is the culmination of a history of human history of God proving his faithfulness, his evidences of his trustworthiness. That is manifested in the fact that God did bring salvation through Jesus Christ. That is the case of hope, and Jesus Christ is the proof of that hope. And there's really only one other question to ask, which is this. What do we do in life until that hope is realized? While we are waiting for our own deaths or Jesus Christ to return, what on earth do we do? How do we use that hope to live a kind of life that God would find desirable, that God would find glorifies him appropriately? That answer is found in Titus chapter 2, verse 11 to 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, excuse me, and godly lives in this present age. And here's the key verse, waiting for our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. The idea of the returning of Christ should be so good to us that we become zealous for good works. And of course, Titus isn't the only one who says that that kind of hope makes us zealous for good works. That's the first thing we studied in our worldview series. Verse 13, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? It's the exact same point. Hope 
in Christ is that fundamental starting point in your worldview that you can trust God, you can trust his word. So you don't just do good, you're pumped to do good. It is everything you want to do in this life because you know how good it is to be a Christian. I think the best example we could end with is the example of Abraham who had to deal with this exact same trouble. Guys, the Bible is so honest to you that life is hard and it is not easy to trust in God no matter how trustworthy he is. Not because he's not trustworthy at points, but because we are sinful and that comes ramming up to the front of God's faithfulness so often in which we want to back away from him. How do we deal with those moments when we are so weak and we need a strong God to be an anchor of hope to us? Listen to the example of Abraham. Romans chapter four, verse 18. In hope, Abraham believed against hope. What does that mean? What does it mean that Abraham believed against hope? What it means is that Abraham didn't want to hope in God like an earthly hope. He didn't want to wish that God was trustworthy. He wanted to wait on God because he knew he was trustworthy. God made Abraham promises. If those promises came from a man, they would be worthy of rejection. They would be worthy of not being hoped in. But they didn't come from a man. They came from God who always keeps his promises. And so he could believe against false earthly hope and believe in real biblical hope. And therefore, he believed he should become the father of many nations. As he has been told, so your offspring shall be. How good is that hope? How fundamental, how good is it to have that kind of hope? Paul continues, verses 20 and 21 of Romans 4. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. Trust, hope, and faith all come in one package. If you have faith in God, it means you trust God. If you trust God, it means you can hope in God. If you are hoping in God, it means you have faith in God. These are all different sides of the same coin. And the beautiful thing is that he is explaining that that fundamental hope is not because Abraham is the best Christian in the whole world. It has nothing to do with Abraham's strength. It has everything to do with the God who is revealing himself over and over as trustworthy. When you are down and you think that your faith is not strong enough to come up against a worldview that's trying to force you to renounce Christ, remember that God has promised not only to sustain you, but he will be brighter and brighter in your face so that every other worldview becomes duller and duller and dimmer and darker and proved to be as worthless as it is because God will always prove to you that he's so much better. And so you need to remember, especially coming in light of the last Sunday sermon, that fundamental proof that you can hope in God, which is all of the Bible, but fundamentally found in the resurrection. And if you think that that's only a New Testament hope, listen to Hebrews and listen to why Abraham hoped in God, specifically in this text referring to when he had to sacrifice his son Isaac. 
Hebrews chapter 11, 19 says this, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, Abraham offered up his son, Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son of whom it was said through Isaac, shall your offspring be named. Here's the point. Why was Abraham so hopeful that he could do something so seemingly horrendous and still trust in God? This was his hope. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. Abraham had hope because he believed that God was trustworthy and that God could resurrect the dead, even his own son, if it came to that. It is the power of God proving that death will be defeated because Jesus Christ has lived a perfect life instead of you. And that he died a perfect death so that he would be punished and not you. And therefore, you are united to him. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, you have the same hope as him, which is that you will be raised from the dead. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Let's pray. Father, there is no God like you. There is no fear. There is no opposition. There is no enemy that could stand up to you. Lord, we are not strong enough to stay Christians. We are not good enough to save ourselves. And we are not courageous enough to boldly go into this life with no fear. We can do none of these things, but you can and you have. And you sent your son to die on the cross for our sins so that we could trust you completely with our salvations, that our hope is not a wish, it is a waiting. Our hope is completely built on the sacrifice of your son, Christ, and you will show yourself brightly that we would be continued to be drawn to that hope, that we would continue in this life with so much enjoyment. No matter the suffering, no matter the pain, no matter the sin that we commit, you will never abandon us. You are our God. Please help us to be faithful to you, to share the gospel boldly, and that we would trust in a biblical understanding of hope so that we know that we are pilgrims in this world waiting for a better hope to come, not because the world is perfect, but because you are there and you make it perfect. You have removed our sin from us. We are no longer slaves to it, but slaves of righteousness. So help us live righteous lives, not to earn our salvation, but that we would honor you and one day be excited to see you face to face and walk into eternal life with you that has already started now. We thank you for this time and we pray all of this in your matchless name. Amen.